Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's really been nothing more central to the last 50 years of American history than oil. We can start with the energy crisis in the 70s that helped usher in the Reagan revolution. Cheap gas fueled the growth of our suburbs and we're now sprawled out from coast to coast. Osama bin Laden, in claiming responsibility for 9-11, said that it was intended to drive U.S. troops out of Saudi Arabia. Then came the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And today, we still occupy some of the largest oil fields in Syria. Russia's invasion of Ukraine isn't about oil or gas, but the global energy shock it has created is rocking the world's economy. Before that energy shock, oil prices were already soaring, thanks to the cartel of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Russia keeping down production. The result has been extreme political pain for Biden and for Democrats, and there's every reason to think that was precisely the goal of it. But the Russian energy shock is going to create economic chaos around the globe. The amount of hunger and suffering and instability it's likely to breed over the next several months or more is incalculable. Now, the U.S. is planning to ban Russian oil imports, but they don't make up a very significant portion of our energy portfolio. The same is not true for Europe, though. And they've committed to weaning themselves off of it and trying to cut Russian imports by two-thirds over the next year. In that context, Germany announced it would be spending more than 200 billion euros over the next few years transitioning to clean energy. And by a 30-point margin, British voters in a new poll say the country should move toward energy independence by pivoting to clean energy rather than by expanding fracking and increasing domestic production. And the American government is saying the same thing. What this is all a reminder of in the president's view is our need to reduce our reliance on oil. If we do more to invest in clean energy, more to invest in other sources of, of energy, that's exactly what we can do to prevent this uh, from happening in the future. Now, the problem for the American government is that our system doesn't let the elected government actually govern unless Joe Manchin is OK with it. And nobody's quite sure where he stands. He spoke on Friday at the major energy conference, CIRA, and introduced a new reason he's opposed, saying, quote, One thing that all Democrats agreed on was the 2017 tax cuts, the way they were implemented, were weighted unfairly. If we all agree and we have agreement on one thing, then use it to get your financial house in order. We can still do that. We can still do the one with the drug thing. I said, that's the most popular thing we have, getting our drugs. We know we can do that. And then we can do maybe an all-in, all-inclusive climate package to some extent. They know where I stand. If it doesn't have an all-in policy to where you're treating the horsepower that you need from your fossil, which is coal, oil, and natural gas, and the investments that we're going to need in the new uh, nuclear reactors, if you will, and also in geothermal, and all the things that we're talking about with our wind and solar and all that. So we'll see what they want to go down that path or not. The war in Ukraine is a fork in the road for world history. One path leads to doubling down on fossil fuels and endless wars, some small skirmishes, some regional wars, and maybe another world war. 
Republicans and some Democrats are saying now is the time we have to drill, baby, drill. The Biden administration needs to end their war on domestic energy production immediately and restore our nation's energy dominance. We can no longer rely on Russia, Venezuela, or oil from the Middle East to meet our energy needs. But the Biden administration must commit to an America first strategy in oil production. The other path is the one Germany's headed for, serious investment in renewable energy. The fossil fuel industry is hoping we choose the former one. And my old colleague, Kate Aronoff, who now reports for the New Republic, is in Houston for Sarah Week right now. It's one of the biggest oil and gas conferences in the world, and she's there to learn how the fossil fuel industry is feeling in this fragile moment. Joined now by Kate Aronoff, the author of Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back, and also my former colleague at The Intercept and currently a reporter at The New Republic. Kate, welcome to Deconstructed. So good to be here. I'm a longtime listener. And uh, first of all, your name is uh, suspiciously Russian sounding. So <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to interrogate that first before this is allowed on any major platforms first. Where, what's, where does Aronoff come from? It is, am I allowed to, to mildly curse? I think you can. On here? Yeah. It's a bastardization. I can't be Russian. Well, the good news for all the listeners concerned is that... It's it's the bastardization of a, I think Latvian surname. The Aronoffs were sort of migratory Jews in Eastern Europe somewhere, and uh, we came over a very long time ago. So um, have no uh, no connection to 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 Russia in any in any meaningful mm. way besides this that's name. If a, it were really Russian, it would be an Rus- OV. What a Russian would say. Right, right, right. It could be. I could be a deep agent. You know, living that. No, Carrie Russell life. No, but seriously, so tell us about this <laughs> conference. So you're down in Houston, and this is it's described as the premier energy conference. Um, wh- where are you? What, what's what's going on down there? The Super Bowl of energy. All big ideas begin with a spark. It is Sierra Week 2022. Sierra Week, the world's premier energy conference. So this is a conference that is in its 40th year. It's an energy conference put on historically by this consultancy founded by the author of the prize, Dan Jurgen. CEOs from major energy companies, top government officials, clean tech, innovators, financiers, and more. And this is an annual conference. This is the first one they've held since 2019 on energy broadly and some commodities there's you know some people involved with copper and lithium and various things but the main focus is oil and gas and with a pretty specific focus within oil and gas on some of the bigger companies so Exxon's here Chevron is here ConocoPhillips those sort of big names uh, several international oil companies Total BP Shell Aramco Uh, The head of OPEC was here. And then some slightly smaller producers who people have probably heard of, but maybe a little less familiar with, and people who service those companies. But by and large, it's sort of the big wigs who are here and executives, not, you know, people who are working on rigs. And so in your first dispatch for TNR about Sarah Week, you you wrote that the news of the ban on Russian oil imports was 
got got kind of a muted greeting. And why why was that? Yeah, so for the people who were here who were hyper fixated on oil and gas markets, the effect of what's been happening in Europe, it's sort of already registered, right? And so there had been talk about the White House embracing this ban over the weekend, and that had sent prices up. And so when it was actually announced on Tuesday, the actual response was pretty muted just because they, the market had already sort of internalized this. And that's one way they did it. The other way is that companies like refineries, for instance, who buy crude oil and then process it so it can be sold at gas stations, have already started self-sanctioning. And what that means effectively is that they know that Russian oil is toxic for anyone, certainly buying it in North America. Russian oil is pretty toxic now. And so they can get that from other places and oil is pretty easy to ship. And so that's not a, a huge problem for refiners. And so they had already started doing that. Over the last few months or over the last several years? Like when, when did uh, the toxicity of Russian oil start to filter into the American system? Certainly over the last few months, but you know, companies like Exxon had walked away around 2014. There was, you know, uh, around the invasion of Crimea, that was, uh, that was one sort of moment in which Russia looked more toxic than it had, but certainly over the last the last weeks and months. Um, but this big wave of self-sanctioning has certainly been a more a more recent phenomenon. Okay, so sorry. So that was one thing you were saying. The other thing was um, and the the U.S. just doesn't get very much oil from Russia, especially over over the last year or so. I mean, on the upward end, figures I think were around eight percent. But if I understand this right, that's been much lower recently. And so it's just a pretty easy mm-hmm. thing, all things considered, for the U.S. to do. Was there any talk about either Venezuela or Iran? Yeah, a bit. And it's it's interesting. I mean, the big talk on Venezuela, and I'll say that I was mostly talking to folks who live and work in the U.S. and was talking a little bit less to, you know, folks who are here from other countries or OPEC members, for instance. But they're sense and, you know, read everything these guys say through the, take it with the biggest grain of salt you can. But <laughs> what they will say is that, you know, is it really possible for Venezuela to bring a huge amount of reserves online, given that the country obviously has been dealing with crushing sanctions for a long time. And then you'll hear another line about sort of the state of, of the state-owned oil company before those sanctions took effect. So there's a bit of a question there about whether that is someplace you can expect a lot of supply to come from. And then on Iran, you know, I think people have been excited about the roughly million do- million barrels per day Iran could bring online if the JCPOA actually happens. But the flip side of that is that that's been in conversation for so long that people are a little bit skeptical it'll really have that big of an effect. And the JCPOA for people, that's the that's the Iran deal. And it's very close to getting inked, according to everything we're hearing. The Iranians are asking for some sort of promise that the U.S. won't back out of it immediately, like we did last time, which seems to be the sticking point. Uh, and also, also seems to be a reasonable demand from their perspective in the sense that we actually did walk away from that. And on Venezuela, since so much of the market is about futures and future capacity, if Venezuela says, all right, we've got a deal with the U.S., we're going to do this, 
and there's going to be a major investments from these Western companies. The sanctions are lifted because these Western companies know how to pump oil. Would that have an effect on the future prices? Because you'd know that, okay, yes, we destroyed them with sanctions over the last couple decades, but we also can rebuild them fairly quickly. Or are they thinking that they're so just decimated that it's just not something that's going to impact the global markets in any serious way? Uh, this this question is a little bit <laughs> a little bit above my pay grade, but. Yeah, there's a lot of skepticism about how much can really come online. And I just know a little bit less about about Venezuela um, than than some other places. But, you know, it is a potentially huge amount of oil. I mean, I think that's that's the big open question people have been talking about here. What was the mood like more generally? Because, you know, you had that period of 2020 when the pandemic hit that all of a sudden you had oil prices go under zero for, I don't know how long that lasted, but it was enough to like, you know, get everybody giggling across the globe at the very idea that something could cost less than nothing. But you've also had long-term downward pressure on, on prices of both, you know, oil and natural gas over the last decade or so, profits struggling. And now all of a sudden you've got this war. How was, was the war greeted as a kind of savior of the industry or like what what was the mood for these energy executives who were meeting amidst you know right on the brink of world war three yeah it's been really interesting to watch i mean my dream as a reporter obviously is to walk into a conference of the oil and gas industry and see people get up on stage and say we love being war profiteers that is not exactly what i what i heard but you'll hear this careful, and I would say not entirely, obviously, disingenuous sort of rhetorical term, which is to say, obviously, this crisis is horrible. You know, we have nothing but respect and are finding so much inspiration and the bravery of the Ukrainian people. And it's going to be a very good year. And we're, you know, are looking forward to, you know, having a brighter future, right, than, than we might have had previously in so many words. And, you know, I think, like I said, you know, you want... You always want good quotes, but people have been um, walking a pretty a pretty careful line, and, and it's a savvy industry, right? And I think the other thing that's really stood out to me is, you know, all of the branding for the conference, all of the sort of backdrops for speakers, the registration table, everything is green. And hmm. it was very much the expectation when this conference was planned, right? Presumably, you know, well before COP26, uh, the climate talks in Glasgow in November, that this conference is going to be very much focused on the role that the oil and gas industry has to play in the energy transition, in getting off of carbon. They will not say getting off of fossil fuels, of course, because they're fossil fuel companies. But that was, you know, the intention of of this conference. Clearly, sort of what they were going for um, was to sort of present a green face to the world and talk through that. And so, obviously, you know, this war happened this war began slightly before the conference started. And so the sort of range of priorities has just shifted really dramatically. And so there's still, you know, a lot of talk about the energy transition that hasn't gone away. But there's also uh, this big rupture in energy markets that's happened. And that's fallen in different ways for different people. The more sort of sober analysts, especially of oil markets, 
are pretty freaked out, I, I would say, about the potential for Russia to cut off supplies because there's no good replacement right now for Russian oil, especially. And it's just, you know, really hard to see a path forward. I mean, the words global recession were, were tossed around. That is a very bleak situation if indeed it does happen. On the gas side, especially LNG exporters, liquefied natural gas, which is a sort of specific corner of the industry, and people who, who sell a lot of gas in general, there's a kind of I told you so vibe, a lot of talk along the lines of we were counted out, nobody in Europe wanted to touch gas, and now we're at the table. Now they need us. Don't they look foolish, right? And that, you know, there's a spectrum of how much people are willing to boast about that. But from from some of the executives who've been on stage the last couple of days, that really was the sort of energy that they're taking a, a bit of a victory lap and, and, you know, saying things like, you know, it's so good that we're talked about as a bridge fuel again. Is that where the song Don't Cry For Me Hydrocarbons came from that was performed oh, on stage? Oh, <laughs> Can you do a rendition for us? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, to, to give people a bit of background, I don't go to a ton of corporate conferences, but I assume this genre of thing happens somewhat often. But the other night there was to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Sarah Week, a musical put on by Broadway performers who, you know, themselves very talented uh, no, no gripe with them, certainly. But the musical sort of told the story of the U.S. oil and gas industry through a series of edited Broadway show tunes, which is exactly as bad as you think it is and much worse. Uh, I would I would argue uh, I was physically taken aback. It's like Weird Al Yankovic, but for fossil fuels i don't i think that's too unfair to weird al too, gen- <laughs> too, too unfair. <laughs> just a, a real horror show um this you know it's it maybe not worth including but i i learned in sort of posting about this that there is a genre of musical called industrials that were very popular with big companies like ge back in the day and this is uh, in that genre of these sort of you know corporate sponsored corporate written musical performances. But uh, but no, the, the don't cry for me hydrocarbons, I think, was inflected with a different meaning, certainly, than it might have been a couple of weeks ago. But so far as I can tell, was not was not written with an eye toward war in Ukraine. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And so, so they came into the conference kind of in retreat, it sounds like, you know, they were, or they were preparing for the conference in retreat. You know, they were going to, they're going to help the world get off of them. You're going to focus on climate, the transition to a new energy economy. But now it kind of seems like they're feeling their oats in a way, like they've got their mojo back in some ways. But at the same time, you're talking about that they're nervous about a recession. How, how much do they care? Like, what is the consequence to them of a global recession because you know very high energy prices will produce a global recession you know it's hard it's hard to see any way around that yet there's still very high energy prices for them so how do they feel about that set of affairs yeah there there is excitement right about and nobody would say they're excited certainly um but about you know the sorts of conversations that are possible now especially in Europe about things like long-term contracts and infrastructure that were not possible before. They have more of an audience with the White House than they had before. So there's excitement about that, but it's not unmitigated, I would say, for, for really anyone. And the sort of key phrase to understand here is demand destruction. So as this can mean a number of different things that, that we'll probably get into, but when you hear oil executives talk about it, as it relates to the price of oil in particular, um, what that means is there's a you know a sort of sweet spot in which it is very profitable to sell oil, and that price can be quite high. Where it's been in the last couple of days, and just the really extreme volatility, which is is making people a bit nervous, the price could get to a place where people turn off of energy. People are buying less and consuming less. And that is intensified for the oil companies in particular by electric vehicles, right? And so if the price goes above a certain level, you know, it's not just that people will drive less or carpool or pursue different different forms of transportation, but that they might opt to buy a different car if if oil, you know, stays at $130 a gallon or, or, you know, even higher, it's $200 a gallon is not is not out of the question. Um, and so that makes producers nervous. The idea that the price would get so high that it begins cutting into demand for their product and even more worryingly prompting sort of different consumer choices that in the long run is very bad for them. And I suppose in the short run, a, a recession would also destroy some of that demand too people would just have less money, fewer jobs. Yes. Just be spending less. Yes, that that is correct. Yeah. I mean, certainly the people who are here are pretty insulated from the the effects of a recession. So a right. lot of Maseratis and Lamborghinis in the parking lot. But uh but for their business, um, you know, a recession is 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 not optimal. But I do love the phrase demand destruction because I feel like in some ways that's the actual mm-hmm. goal of mm-hmm. clean energy. 
is to destroy demand. Like the supply exists, it's there. But if you can destroy the demand, and to me, I I feel like, and you you know the industry a lot better. So tell me if this is if my sense is right here. But I feel like one of the greatest fears, or the maybe the greatest fear of the oil industry, is around kind of low prices or low demand. A combination of those two. It helps explain why the cartel OPEC was was so necessary. That if left to a free market, energy prices, oil prices wind up at a place that just simply aren't profitable to extract anymore. And so, you know, oil companies, you know, have needed to do all sorts of different things to make sure that prices stay high so that it remains a lucrative business, but they can't go too high to get people thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't a long-term move for us. You know, maybe we maybe we need to get an electric car. You know, maybe we need to power that electric car, you know, with with industrial solar panels. So you know, where where on the kind of scale of existential risks does the industry think about, you know, demand and, and prices? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. And this is a, an especially interesting question for drillers who are really active in shale in places like the Permian Basin, because that process to frack is so capital intensive that you really need a lot of a lot of money just to do it. And the wells are exhausted relatively quickly, a little less so now with, with technology that has expanded their life. But it's an extremely capital intensive process. And the story of the Shell Revolution really is that the companies were involved, which, you know, at one point there were well over 100 at least, but potentially maybe hundreds of them. But, you know, many, many companies who were drilling and they hemorrhaged cash because they were just drilling as quickly as possible. And Wall Street was pretty patient in part because debt was really cheap, interest rates were really low, and they just kept pouring money into the sector. And then the commodity price crash of 2014 happens, 2014, 2015. And a bunch of these companies get wiped out. There's consolidation in the industry. And then it happens again. They drill to their heart's content, grow at a rapid clip, and then are wiped out in 2020. And that's a very abbreviated history of that. But essentially, because the main type of production that is happening in the United States now is this very capital-intensive production, unconventional drilling, that they need high prices in some sense to survive. And so having oil at $30 a barrel is really an existential threat for them. And it's why, you know, you will hear from some of the more honest executives, people like Scott Sheffield at Pioneer, right, has said something to the effect of, we are not going to grow faster than we're planning to, about 5%, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what the price of oil is, even if it gets to $200 a barrel, because our investors won't let us, right? They're pissed off, essentially, because we burned through their money for a decade. (laughs) And they want to see returns, they want big share buybacks they want to see you know a lot of a lot of profit and so we are you know going to get our balance sheets in order and stay the course because we're trying to be around in 50 years which you know is obviously horrible for the climate but you know in the short run means that they are just not going 
to produce very much and, you know, have not sort of invested in such a way over the last couple of years that would make that make that really possible. And you used to do kind of oil divestment activism back in college. And I remember like around that time when I was covering it, I remember thinking like, this doesn't make any sense. Like it's, it's not about the share price, the way that Exxon makes money is pumping oil and selling it. But was I wrong? Like, has there been so much success around pressuring pension funds to divest from oil that it leaves these other private equity outfits as the kind of last resort for these investments and they're not interested in it. And so as a result, some of that activism maybe did really actually strangle some of the production, or do you think it was more just that functionally it was a capital losing project and capitalists don't I like think losing both capital. can be true to some extent. I will, you know, take <laughs> take some pride in the, it, the four years I yeah, spent as a college like student. You, yeah, it does seem like you guys deserve some credit for this now. Well, this is so it's it's it's. I, w- I would say sorry for my skepticism. <laughs> no, I, I I think you were you were you know, uh, and you're right to be to be skeptical. And you know what I said then, what I'll say now, is that the goal really was not to remove a certain amount of capital from the likes of ExxonMobil or coal companies, which were a bigger deal back then, but to take away their license to operate, to really, you know, drag their reputation through the mud was the the goal, not to, you know, not that the sort of endowment of my tiny liberal arts college was going to make or break Exxon's uh, Exxon's, uh, balance Mm -hmm. sheet. But, you know, I think on one, on the one hand, that movement has been pretty successful. Um, but the, the reason why this is such a funny question now is because one line you will hear from oil executives and from lobbyists in particular is that the financial sector, places like BlackRock or investment banks are just crawling with these woke climate activists who hate the industry and won't invest in us. Uh, and that, you know, the divestment movement has spread from college campuses to BlackRock or to, you know, Goldman Sachs or something like that. And I don't, I don't think that's really, that's really true. The reality, and, and you know, I heard sort of third hand an executive saying something to this effect, but they said, you know, we already went through a divestment movement. It was because we were bad stewards of capital that we could not, you know, return value to our shareholders. And so mm-hmm. they left. And so, you know, I think I think both are true. And those are really the right. two of the major dynamics these companies are facing right now is one that investors, you know, for a host of reasons that are that are pretty complicated, uh, are looking toward other things to some extent. Although the big asset managers and banks are still very generously funding fossil fuels, even coal, but there is a real danger that these companies could lose their license to operate, given sort of overriding concerns about the climate crisis. Right, that is very much on their minds. Um, but the other is that they, you know, are right. <laughs> are bad at spending money and bad at you know running their business. Right. And the the price relationship seems to expose kind of a contradiction in what you hear from Fox News. Like if, if so, if you listen to Fox or Fox Business, uh, more Fox than Fox Business, interestingly. But if you listen to Fox News, they'll say, what we need to do is we need to drill more. You know, and if Biden hadn't, you know, shut down Keystone XL, which, you know, XL stands for export. <laughs> so like, there's no way that that was going to be doing anything for domestic production. But anyway, beside the point, generally they'll say, because Biden shut down all of the domestic drilling. That's why we're paying, you know, such high prices. 
at the pump. But if it's the case that the, the kind of the industry leaders aren't interested in drilling unless the prices get and stay extremely high, then there's no way that drilling brings prices down because once it gets to a certain point, they stop drilling. Like that seems to be an irresolvable contradiction in the argument being made on Fox News. Am I, I think wrong you might that? even be ascribing it more logic <laughs> than, <laughs> than is there. And as someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about climate denial, hmm. I think that frame is sort of helpful, which is that when you go to a climate denial conference, there's no sense trying to find coherence in any of it, right? And so some people will say that it's the sun that's causing global warming. Maybe there is global warming, but it's a good thing because it makes plants grow. Just a real mixed bag of talking points and just sort of throwing anything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And and that's similar here. And I, But I think it, you know, it, you can see where certain things are coming from a little bit more. So the American Petroleum Institute, for instance, has basically been hewing the Fox News line and kind of what the GOP is saying, which is that the Biden administration and Democrats are placing artificial constraints on our ability to keep prices down and to provide energy security to Europe in its time of need. That is, you know, essentially the talking point that's coming from that that sort of arm of things. And then it just makes no sense when you then hear actual oil and gas CEOs saying, we're not going to drill no matter what. We're not going to grow because right. <laughs> it's not in our it's not in our interest to do so. And so, you know, that that incoherence is just part of the game. I mean, they're 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 very good at, at lobbying. <laughs> you know, the, the oil and gas industry is certainly has a pretty uh, big footprint on Washington. It's the most important part of their business. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that and war. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so I think that is, it's part of why I wanted to come here, just because those two things on their face seem so, so out of touch. But, you know, I, I, API, right, has just been using human suffering as an excuse to advance longstanding policy interests. As you said, right, greenlighting the Keystone XL pipeline and opening up more uh, federal lands to drilling will do basically nothing uh, for the price of oil uh, or, or supplies in the short term. And oil is a global commodity, right? And so there's only at the most maximal end so much anyone in the United States can do to keep the price at a certain level because, you know, it's produced in many, in many different places. And so any big takeaways from this conference? Did you change your understanding of, of the industry or where it's headed at all as a result of this time at the conference? I, you know, came in expecting people to be a bit more openly excited than they were. And it, I think it's, it's helpful. Uh, to break down some of the more cartoonish <laughs> notions about about this industry and uh, see it up close. And, you know, I think the big takeaway on the industry side for me is just that this is not an unmitigated excitement. Certainly, you know, people are going to make a lot of money this year, but the longer term concerns which were present before 
Russia invaded Ukraine are not going away, right? They're still very deeply concerned about long-term trends toward renewables, toward getting off of fossil fuels, and are relating to this moment, as far as I can see, as a chance to get really one big round of infrastructure permits and approvals and financing and long-term contracts to uh, supply Europe with gas, for instance, for the next 30 years. So there's, you know, this window of opportunity, I think is is, is the best way to think about it, um, but still a very, you know, persistent existential worry. And the other thing I'll just say, you know, there were a lot of administration officials who were here. Uh, Jennifer Granholm spoke yesterday, Amos Hochstein, who is the State Department's international energy advisor, former employee of Tolorian, one of the big natural gas exporters, LNG exporters. Um, Michael Reagan was here. John Kerry, right? John Kerry was here, uh, spoke Monday about how gas is a bridge fuel and the industry needs to be at the table of any climate action. And they're walking a very strange line. Um, they have an incredibly difficult job to do. And I say that as someone you know, who has been very critical of uh, the ways that this administration has handled climate issues, but the oil and gas industry are acting like babies in, 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 in a lot of ways. I mean, just whining about not being at the table, about not, you know, having as much access to the White House as they would like, about, you know, being bullied or discriminated against. And you heard a lot of that. Uh, and that's sort of where this I told you so sentiment came from. And I do not envy anyone in the White House right now trying to navigate both those dynamics and just the fact that they have these different constituencies to serve, obviously, you know, for all of the right reasons, climate activists are very leery of seeing an uptick of drilling and especially of new infrastructure coming online. And there is just a real energy crisis that is is um, very scary in some ways and very little that the United States government by, you know, the sort of idiosyncrasies of the way our energy system was set up to sort of seed all of these investment and planning decisions to the private sector has very few tools to tell the industry to do really anything. I mean, it could use very, you know, sort of novel powers under the Defense Production Act or these various other statutes to to try to do something. But but there's just, you know, a very limited toolbox that the U.S. government has to make sort of any say over what over what the industry can do. And um yeah, I, it's a pretty impossible task. I mean, just meeting the sort of basic crisis at hand and then figuring out how to, you know, stay on any sort of track on climate and then, you know, facing midterms in November, not get absolutely decimated uh, by gas prices being potentially at $5 a gallon. Mm -hmm. So I, that, I just felt, you know, over the last couple of days, felt a lot more sympathy, I think, for the White House than I, than I really ever have, which is, you know, not to give them too much credit, but man, they are really in a tough spot. And as for the industry, I, 
I hope it's not too long that we can put these sad sacks out of their misery. Well, I, I will say just, I know we have to go, but um, one of the most hopeful things about um, <laughs> this conference was going to a session on coal today and coal's role in the energy sector. And the room was basically empty. And these three guys they had talking on stage were so sad, <laughs> just, you know, really beside themselves about the state of their industry. So, you know, hopefully... In another couple of years, oil and gas, you know, can can be in a in a in a similarly sad state. We can dream. <laughs> exactly. Kate, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That was Kate Aronoff, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.